whenever I hear the media or members of the public allude to the fact that we're undertrained or that we don't care about training, we don't value education or professional development, it's completely not true. And that's one of the things I wanted to be able to shed some light on because that's one of my passions in my career. Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. I have a similar passion. As you know, one of my goals is to shed light on subjects like this, to tell the real stories of law enforcement, the ones that don't make the news. Helping me do that today is Lieutenant Jared Ross of the Arlington, Texas Police Department. Jared contacted me with the goal of addressing civilian misperceptions when it comes to police ethics and training, accountability, use of force, and more. As Jared says, he wants to talk about the remarkable feats of interpersonal communication, negotiation, de-escalation, and problem solving that officers do every day, a critical part of the narrative that gets lost. We also talk about Jared's 18-year career in law enforcement. He was recently promoted to lieutenant and currently holds the position of patrol commander. He also serves as a primary instructor and subject matter expert on police ethics and professionalism for the department. He has also worked as a field training supervisor, a hostage negotiator, a detective in the domestic violence unit, and an internal affairs investigator. Jared, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here and have this conversation today. Uh, I've got to say, when I discovered your podcast several months ago, I, I really appreciated your approach to talking to members of law enforcement as someone who's sympathetic to officers, but uh, somewhat of an outsider as well. It's a great perspective that I think the public at large would really benefit from hearing. So I'm excited to be a part of that dialogue with you today. Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I'm i glad to hear that. It's uh, important to me. I, I wish that people would take the time to listen and understand. One of the things you mentioned when you contacted me was that you have some things you want to talk about because you want the public to understand these things. Some of the things we're going to talk about are police ethics and investigating misconduct. Also, one of the things I noticed in researching your background is something called remedial training, which I really hadn't considered. I've read it. I understand it. It makes sense, but I'm glad to have the chance to talk about it. Yes, of course. And I think that's one of the big gaps, I think, from the public's understanding of what we do as law enforcement administrators and trainers behind the scenes is the amount of training, both initial training on the job training and remedial training that goes into these officers. And of course, they don't always get it right. Sometimes the training is inadequate. Sometimes officers forget their training or they ignore their training. But Whenever I hear the media or members of the public allude to the fact that we're undertrained or that we don't care about training, we don't value education or professional development, it's completely not true. And that's one of the things I wanted to be able to shed some light on because that's one of my passions in my career. Well, let's do that. Let me just get a little more background on you. I know that you just promoted to lieutenant in the summer. Yes. And I think most of the audience... Uh, our law enforcement are retired and they know that, but some people are not. So for to promote to sergeant or lieutenant, you test for that, right? Yes. And depending on the type of organization you work for, the test may be different. We are not a civil service organization. So 
we do use testing, but we also heavily lean on assessments, assessment panels of law enforcement leaders from around the country that come in and objectively evaluate our candidates. So it can be kind of a grueling process to go through that. We do that for sergeant and lieutenant. And so I just went through that and was fortunate to finish near the top of the list, not at the very top, but close enough to be able to be called up to fill a couple of vacancies. So I promoted back in July and I got assigned to one of our midnight shifts as the <laughs> new guy typically does, but I've, I've always loved working midnight shifts. So I'm kind of back at home and I'm get an opportunity to work with uh, great officers and sergeants and one of our higher crime areas of the city. So mm. it's been, it's been a great opportunity. Well, and did I hear you say you bring in people from outside the agency as part of this process? Yes, our department, like a lot of others, will contract with uh, consulting groups that specifically specialize in conducting assessments for promotional exams. So they're the ones that recruit and they bring in folks from all over. Well, congratulations. Thank you. I'm sorry about midnights. That's all right. Um, I think my wife hates it more than I do. But you said you like it. I do. Yeah, it's been great. Does it remind you of when you started? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's a different perspective now because now I'm one of the bosses. So maybe not quite as carefree as I once was, <laughs> but it's, it's a great opportunity to impart some of my experience, both as a street cop, as a patrol first level supervisor, as a trainer, as someone that's worked investigations when officers make mistakes or, or get accused of things and kind of seeing all of that holistic perspective, I think has brought a lot of benefit to the shift that I work on, hopefully. I guess, you know, what we had talked about in the pre-interview too, is that I hear officers from other parts of the country expressing frustration with their administrator. Like the, you lose touch once you get to lieutenant status of what it's like to be a street cop. So how do you, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I think that's kind of a prevailing uh, sentiment that, you know, your line level officer that we've all held at some point, right? To some degree, your viewpoint changes as your roles change and as you move up in leadership. But that doesn't necessarily mean all lieutenants and deputy chiefs and assistant chiefs or captains or commanders have lost sight. I think the good leaders remember what it was like and they remind themselves what it was like and they think about those things before they communicate new directives and things to officers. And that's been one of the biggest adjustments for me as I, because I've, I've been a supervisor in total about a dozen years now. And I'm sure at first as a sergeant, I didn't, I didn't do a good job of that. Right. I would just say, okay, here's what we got to do. Let's go do it. Now I realize, especially as a Lieutenant, I can't just send an email to officers and say, Hey, we need to start doing this. They need to see my face in the briefing room. They need to hear a little bit of the why behind what we need, you know, why we need to do this new procedure or why this new policy was written. I think that's, that's critical to kind of bridging that gap between the administration and the line level officer. So that midnight shift, you are the, the most senior person working and do you go out on calls? At times, we're a pretty large department. We have uh, o- almost 400,000 people that live in the city. And so we have just under 700 officers total. So we've got four police districts divided geographically. So I have counterparts in other districts. So I'm not in charge of the whole city. Mm. But um, certainly, yes, if, if, a, if a major call goes out that, you know, hostage situation, a murder, 
uh, fatality accident, officer-involved shooting, something like that. There are certain incidents where they would be expected to be a lieutenant in charge. A lot of the calls are handled very effectively by sergeants. A lot of my job is administrative, but I try to get out as much as possible, and I try to make myself available when those big calls come. Have they come? Yes, yes. Uh, I had uh, We had a Friday night a few weeks ago where we had a fatality accident and a murder both occur in our district the same night. And so I had to leave one scene and go to another. That doesn't happen often, but I'm glad I was there that night. Uh, I'm glad I had two sergeants to help me as well. But yeah, I'm not needed every night out there, but we're there to to go when called. I did want to ask, are you seeing officers on the street, patrol officers, are they motivated these days? Are they enjoying the job? I don't think that you suffer from the anti-police narrative as badly as we do, let's say, out here in Seattle. Yes, it's it's probably quite different than the Seattle area. I, I can imagine. I've heard stories of different parts of the country. You know, being in Texas, we we enjoy quite a bit of community support. It's not universal. We are right in between Dallas and Fort Worth. It's a very suburban and urban area. You know, DFW is like one giant city, and so we have a major university with a lot of young folks in our city who we just have a very diverse population. So we've had our fair share of controversy at times. We've had protesters during 2020. I don't think any city was immune to that. And we still encounter things every once in a while, but we've been fortunate that we haven't had, knock on wood, any major community backlash that's been destructive. And I really have to credit that in addition to the area we're in, but you know, our department's done a great job historically building bridges in the community. And that may be harder to forge that path in certain communities and others, but we've been really intentional about being in the faith-based communities, being in the schools, mentoring young folks, trying to break down barriers wherever we can so that they, there's some positive connections with officers that are already forged so that when something does happen that's controversial or we have a police shooting that you know doesn't look great in the news, we may have some upset folks, but we don't have quite the level of turmoil as some other places do. And I, I really have to credit our department's proactive, intentional efforts. I think our previous chief called it building positive social capital <laughs> because you know you're going to have to draw from that bank at some point. And so the more you can put into it ahead of time, the better off you're going to be. That's true. And I also, I did interview one of your colleagues, former colleagues. He's moved on from Arlington, Texas. The interview was Lieutenant Chris Cook, who was the PIO at the time. So, yes, yes. Um, but let's get to what you want to talk about. I know what you said, you know, you want to help the public understand how much training your officers do get. Is there a place that you want to start? Do you want to tell me what police ethics are? Sure. Yeah. So basically every state is going to have certain standards for their basic police officer training. And I know Texas has had a requirement for ethics training for as long as I've been an officer. And I'm sure every other state does as well. And that's in addition to other similar types of training that we're required to take on multiculturalism, cultural diversity, interpersonal communications, de-escalation. And some of those are are newer concepts that are really, we're doing more and more uh, in recent years for obvious reasons. But a lot of those things we've been doing for a long time. And in addition to the state requirements and departments like ours that are larger and have the ability to 
provide additional training beyond what the state requires. That doesn't mean that issues don't happen, but that's one of the things that I don't think the public at large really understands is how much goes into chiseling out the best possible officers. Uh, We can't control for every variable that could ever happen. Um, It obviously starts with hiring, recruiting, uh, good, sound, ethical officers that have good character. We have our standards and we we follow those standards and we try to select only the best and we pour in a ton of training into them, both with hard skills like firearms and driving and defensive tactics and then soft skills like ethics and de-escalation, interpersonal communication. We do a lot of training on uh, interacting with folks with mental illnesses and we do, of course, a lot of on-the-job training through field training. It works. We see our officers handling dynamic, difficult, stressful situations. Oftentimes these officers are young and they're thrown into chaotic situations. I don't just speak for our department. I mean, this is happening all across the country and not really being recognized. What officers are doing, not just in tactical situations, but the amount of incidences that get de-escalated, those don't make the news, right? So, Mm -hmm. or at least they don't often, but they're happening every night, every day, all over the place. Remarkable feats of interpersonal communication, negotiation, de-escalation, problem solving, that these officers are doing. And that's because we're training them. We're training them well to do it. And then, you know, the flip side of that is we have standards that we have to uphold. So when officers don't meet our standards, when they make mistakes, whether they're intentional mistakes or accidental mistakes, we hold them accountable. And that's a part of, that's a very important part of that process, right? You can't have the training and not have any accountability. You can't have accountability without training. Making sure the public understands what we do to train, what we do to hold our officers accountable is a critical part of that narrative that would give them trust in our organization. I agree with you. I mean, every day officers are doing the work the way it's supposed to be done, and those contacts don't make the news. But when an incident does make the news that is perceived to have been handled incorrectly, there's often no context. And, you know, for the first initial news cycle, they focus on how the officers got it wrong even if they got it right, right? Right. And then in the cases where officers are cleared of any wrongdoing, there's no media coverage of that. So yes, sometimes things go wrong. But when those are the only stories that make the news, it creates this faulty narrative, basically. It is frustrating and it is de- it's, it's detrimental, really. If we're going to do this, let's do it. Let's tell the whole story, which again is what I try to do. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox now. (laughs) You know, I looked up the Code of Ethics on the International Association of Chiefs of Police website, and words like integrity, accountability, fairness are what popped out to me. Our ethics training is largely based on the IACP's Code of Ethics, and of course we expand that and go further, and we include Arlington PD-specific things. But yeah, you're, you're exactly right. We talk about the concepts themselves, And then more importantly, we talk about what those really look like, right? We all know when we sign up to be cops that we're expected to be ethical, good people, right? And and to be honorable, to do the right thing. But what does that look like in practice? What does that look like in everyday scenarios is, is not as readily apparent. So we try to discuss those typical ethical dilemmas that law enforcement may encounter. Everything from a use of force encounter to that person that's screaming, trying to get under your skin to gratuities. I mean, everything from the most significant to the least significant. We try to have a 
free-flowing conversation to kind of encourage their minds to start thinking about how they're going to work through those scenarios when they get out there so that when they're because we can't we can't provide a solution to every scenario under the sun for an officer to have in their tool belt when they graduate the academy so we try to teach them skill sets that they can reach into that skill set and and solve that problem themselves with the skill set that we've given them because we can't predict every single thing and so we just want to get their minds primed to know and to expect there's going to be a lot of gray when they get out there not everything's black and white and when they encounter those gray situations, what principles are they expected to fall back on? And some of those principles we talk about are maintaining the focus on public service. When all else fails, how are you serving the public? We talk about being impartial and unbiased, which of course we want our officers to be, but what does that look like? That's hard when you've got, you may go to a domestic violence scenario where you've got the victim is mad at us mm. and the suspect is nice to us. Mm -hmm. And that's an ethical dilemma right mm -hmm. then. You know, you've got that officer that's like, wait, you want to gravitate towards the person that's being kind and cooperative, but they're actually the aggressor. And so putting your emotions aside for a second and focusing on the task at hand and being objective and impartial uh, is huge. What kind of mistakes? I mean, you had mentioned mistakes of the mind versus mistakes of the heart. Right. What did you mean by that? Yeah. And that's something that I've, I try to talk about in the ethics class, forget where I picked it up. It's not a novel concept, but I think this is important really for administrators making di disciplinary decisions and also for members of the public when they're, you know, making judgments on what an officer did when they hear about it. Taking the time to think about why the mistake was made. It's easier to look at something, and I did this for three and a half years in internal affairs, look at the facts of what happened on one side, the policy on the other side, to write a report to say whether or not the officer's actions violated the policy. That's not difficult. What's more difficult is what the, the job of the supervisors have in determining, trying to get in the officer's head and figure out what caused this accident. Do we have a bad apple? Do we have someone that's intent on violating people's rights? Or do we have someone that lost their cool for a moment and they've never done it before and they lost their cool and they cuss somebody out? It's a problem either way. It needs to be handled and addressed either way, but we have to determine what caused the problem before we determine how we address the problem. Are we, are we able to fix it with some remedial training? Did the officer learn her lesson um, or do we need to part ways with the officer? And of course, that's a nuance that many members of the public naturally don't take for various reasons. It, it does require more intentionality to, to examine the situation further and to you know try to think about all those things before you pass judgment. But it's, it's far easier to look at something on the news and lump it. You may have an officer that makes an innocent mistake. We heard about the scenario where the officer pulls her gun instead of her taser, a tragic outcome. That doesn't mean the officer's sought to kill anyone that day. There's no indication that she had murderous intent. It sounds like it's probably more of a training mistake or, or error in judgment. That's not the same as an officer that intentionally goes out and violates someone's rights. Those are two different things. And you're talking about Kim Potter. Yes. That incident really broke my heart because she clearly had, as you say, no intention. And it's just, it's very hard to see a mistake at that level 
and the consequences for everybody involved. This guy lost his life. She went to prison. I don't know how, I don't know how cops do it. You know, I don't know how you're, you're at so much risk of having something go wrong these days that will forever change your career and possibly your life. Yes. And it's, it's challenging and it always has been. Obviously there's more scrutiny nowadays and I don't shy away from the scrutiny. I think we need to be as transparent as possible. I welcome cameras. I welcome scrutiny and accountability. What none of us want is prejudgments based off of limited information, right? right. We don't we don't want officers crucified for an innocent mistake. It is tragic and it's difficult for you know our younger officers to go out to do their jobs and to not think about that every day because we see examples we've had some here locally where officers have gone to to jail for their mistakes. And we'd be fooling ourselves if we didn't think that that didn't get into officers' heads. I often will tell people, this is a thinking man's game or thinking woman's game. This is not uh, maybe 30 years ago, you thought you just want a bunch of former military guys to go out there and take care of business. This is an intellectual profession. And yes, it's physical at times, but more than anything, we need people that are mentally curious, that are intelligent, that are calm under pressure, that are willing to think through these nuanced situations. We have to stay on top of our training so that we reduce the incident of mistakes. And that's where as individuals and as an organization, we have to be very proactive. We can't ever prevent 100% all mistakes, but by providing good, consistent training, whether that's firearms training or just conversations in the briefing room, and, and setting people's minds right on the task at hand, the more we do that, the better we are. It's an ongoing process. What is an example of an officer making a mistake that requires remedial training? This is not a bad officer. This isn't someone you have to get rid of. That's a great question. And <laughs> that's something that we as supervisors, every time a mistake occurs, we have to evaluate. I would say a lot of mistakes are probably just Officers either forgetting a policy or ignoring a policy or thinking that maybe a policy doesn't apply, but they're aware of the policy. And so that initial conversation after the, whatever the incident is with the first line supervisor and the officer, they should be able to identify that pretty quickly. Is the officer aware of what he or she did? Are they taking ownership of it? Yes, I know the policy, Sarge. Sorry, it won't happen again. That officer probably doesn't need remedial training. What are we going to train that officer on. He already recognizes that he violated policy. I think a lot of times with the more, well, with, with the hard skills and the soft skills, at times we get a little rusty. We train a lot with firearms. If we don't pass our minimum qualification, officers have to do remedial training. Mm. Every once in a while, we'll have an officer that shows that they're not the best at driving. <laughs> They've gotten into a couple accidents on duty. And we may stick them with one of the trainers that trains new officers on police driving, and they'll do a little refresher course. So that's a relatively simple fix, hopefully. And then there's been other times where maybe it's been with tactics or de-escalation, where officers have been taught these things in the academy, but maybe they have forgotten them, or they've gotten a little sloppy, or they've kind of gotten in their own way of doing things that's not really the way we want them to be doing things. And so that may be a good opportunity to bring somebody in and 
refresh their skills. Now, an officer knows they're not supposed to lose their cool and cuss somebody up and down, right? So if an officer does that, really no training is going to fix that. Either he's going to fix it himself or not, and he's going to keep getting in trouble. But there are other things that verbally and non-verbally that we can do to de-escalate situations that sometimes officers just miss, right? They may skip several steps ahead or for whatever reason, or they may get sloppy on their handcuffing, on the way that they take people into custody, and they're forgetting the ways that we did it, and it's causing things to last a lot longer than they need to, and it's potentially hurting people, not because they're trying to, but they're just, they're, they need a refresher. So that'd be a great example of getting somebody back into the gym at the, at the training center, getting them refreshed on that skill set and getting them back out there. And of course, you know, you evaluate it to see if it's improved. Mm-hmm. You know, you talked about working in IA, which stands for internal affairs. And for those who don't know what that is and who potentially think they know what it is, but misperceive it, what, tell me what it is and what you do. Sure. So internal affairs, it may be called professional standards or professional conduct in some other organizations, typically is going to be reserved for investigating serious allegations of misconduct. So internal affairs is almost always going to be the ones investigating excessive force, especially any deadly force uses, whether they're excessive or not, they're automatically going to be investigated by internal affairs to make sure all the policies were followed. In our department, uh, any allegations of racial profiling that may come in from a citizen is automatically investigated by uh, internal affairs because of the potential serious nature of that allegation. Um, Different departments kind of have different methods of determining what gets handled by internal affairs. It's typically going to be for either repeated misconduct or for serious allegations of misconduct that could result in somebody getting suspended or losing their job. If the supervisor knows right away that, hey, this is a minor misconduct, we can handle this with a lower level of discipline, then, then typically internal affairs wouldn't be involved. We're only getting called if it's something more serious, typically. And how do you define excessive force? And let me throw in there that, you know, you want, we wanted to talk about the public's perception and what actually is excessive force and what the public thinks is excessive force are often two different things. Very much so. A lot of times, police use of force does not look pretty. It can look violent. Sometimes if a certain takedown is done swiftly and properly, it may look violent. It may look abrupt. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's excessive or inappropriate. In fact, there are some circumstances where not doing something swiftly can actually put the individual and put the officers at greater risk. So we don't use our tactics correctly and swiftly to take somebody down to the ground and quickly put them in handcuffs. We may end up dancing around and pulling arms in various directions and getting into a pile and then somebody pulls out a pepper spray, pulls out a baton. And, you know, so sometimes it's better just to handle things swiftly. And every department's going to have somewhat similar but varying standards of what force can be used to match certain levels of resistance. So we have a guideline that will dictate what levels of force can be used in response to just passive resistance or verbal resistance, which of course, typically no force is going to be used for just verbal resistance. But then as that level of resistance increases to somebody stiffening their arms or running away or taking a swing at the officer, other things start coming on the table. Pepper spray, taser, what we call empty hand control, which is basically any physical tactics, those start coming on the table as, as possible tools. 
We don't get a, a ton of excessive force complaints. When we do, they're typically from a third party. Usually it's mom that heard about her young adult son getting arrested or or seeing a cell phone video that was filmed by a family member. And certainly we look at those very heavily. And there have been a few times, one in particular that I worked, where it was an excessive force complaint that came in. We looked at it kind of for a preliminary review, kind of fully expecting to say, like we do a lot of the times, eh, there's nothing to it. But there was something to it. And it, it ended up costing the officer his job. And at the end, we did a full investigation. And in that case, unfortunately, the officer lost his cool and he used excessive force and took somebody down to the ground that he really didn't need to. And it caused some injuries to him and the citizen. None of it was justified. And, and our department parted ways with that officer. So those are few and far between, but we certainly take any allegation very seriously. A lot of what we do too is to try to explain things to folks on the back end. After we do an investigation, we unfound something or exonerate something. We try to tell the citizen if we can, this is why the officer did what they did. Mm. And this this was was then our training. And this is why they had to do it. And sometimes that works. And this would be in an instance where the officer is not disciplined? Yes. I've had many of those conversations in internal affairs where maybe the arrestee himself calls later on, or like I said, a family member calls to complain. We look into it. You know, everything was within policy. And we try, assuming they're willing to listen, we try to explain why officers did what they did. That's a big part of our department is trying to be as transparent as possible, whether it's through the complaint process or, you know, an officer dealing with an upset person on the street, trying to explain the why. Some people don't want to listen, or it's, it may not be a safe scenario to explain the why, but I've had a lot of success as a supervisor and as internal affairs investigator explaining the why to people and having the person on the other end of the phone say, okay, that makes sense now that I understand it. I appreciate it. <laughs> not always, but I've <laughs> had that happen multiple times. And I feel that's a huge victory, right? Because mm -hmm. we've helped break those barriers a little bit. I wish you could do that publicly, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, like go on TV and yeah. have a press conference, right? Yeah, and I think it's really got to be case-by-case case specific for, for someone to, I'll give you a great example. I had um, a young guy, he happened to be a, a, a young African-American guy that was uh, driving kind of a sports car late at night, so not a lot of cars on the road. An officer was behind him for several miles until he pulled into his apartment complex and then the officer kept driving. So he called and felt like he was profiled. And I can understand why he felt that way. He's seeing this cop as he turns, the cop's turning. <laughs> so I had to figure out who the officer was, talk to them, figure out. And I looked at the officer's history of what they were doing during that time. And the officer just happened to encounter that car. They happened to be on the roadway. The officer did run the license plate. There was nothing wrong with the car. And then the officer got dispatched to a call for service that happened to be in the same direction that this guy was going. And that's why they went straight instead of turned when he turned into his complex. And that was a great closeout conversation with that guy who, when I first talked to him, he was very suspicious and upset and distrusting of the police. And once I kind of explained that and pulled back the curtain a little bit, and he was able to you know, say, oh, wow, okay, that makes perfect sense. Thank you for explaining that. <laughs> but you, you have to have that connection to really force somebody to want to sit down and talk. And a lot of folks don't want to. 
They don't right. want to talk. They just want to sit behind their computer or they want to scream on the street corner and they're not really interested in nuanced conversations, unfortunately. Right. Well, and how would that officer have known his race to begin with? Well, that's a great point. You know, someone's in a car <laughs> at night, it's going to be pretty hard to see. That's the kind of thing I think makes me and most people very frustrated when people don't understand that the officer most often cannot see who they are pulling over. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, we, we, got, we get complaints a lot for racial profiling when it's a speeding stop that, you know, an officer's clocking someone on the highway from several hundred feet away. There's no way they can see who's in that car. They're just looking at the front of the car, aiming their laser. But then again, we have to remember that the perception of the person is valid. That person, they're going to feel the way they feel, right? And I may not understand it. They feel maybe because of their race or gender or age or whatever, the type of car they had, their mind may automatically go to, oh, well, I know why the officer stopped me. It's because of X, Y, and Z. Hopefully they're open-minded enough to kind of hearing some reason. But yes, it, it can be frustrating. Well, and for example, you know, when I think people get really upset if they get stopped because they meet a description and right. then they end up not being the, I, I think this happened in, I think it was Lansing, Michigan, a situation where someone gets stopped, they meet the description down to the clothing that they're wearing or some amount of the clothing that they're wearing. And then if they feel they have been racially profiled, then it's they attack the police department when the police were just doing their job. I think there were some complicating factors in this case, but I, I do wish that people would just take a moment to understand how this happens and why it doesn't mean the police have done something wrong. Yeah, and, and the burden also falls on officers in that scenario to carefully weigh what is known at the time about the at-large suspect when making decisions on whether or not they should detain somebody. For example, if you have only a vague description, if the description is a Hispanic male or black male, about 25 years old, no clothing descriptions given, and it's very generic, you know, an officer is going to be hard pressed to detain somebody based off of that. But like you said, if it's a specific clothing, especially if there's some sort of unique characteristic that would give an officer reasonable suspicion to believe, and of course it has to be in the same area, the direction of travel, the timing. Those are things an officer has to evaluate. Just because you see somebody walking down the street that's also a black male and the call you're going to involved a black male doesn't mean you can stop because there may be 10 black males walking down that street, you know? And so that some of that burden falls on us as well. And, but I think I know the scenario you're talking about, I believe, and it was a pretty unique clothing description. Mm -hmm. and I, th I think they were you know, they tried their best to try to explain that to the citizen afterward. Sometimes it's just going to happen, unfortunately. If you just happen to be wrong place, wrong time, and you're also wearing yellow shorts and a pink shirt, the same as the robbery suspect, right. and it's very unique, you're, you're going to get stopped. You, you or I could fall into that category too, if we just got unlucky enough to, to match the description. But yeah, there has to be some intentionality and some focus on the, the specifics. For sure. You know, one of the detectives I interviewed very early on from San Diego talked about his supervisor saying, just give them three minutes, explain. He said, you know, we know what it's like to arrest someone because they meet a description. You find out you have the wrong person. You, you know, take them out of handcuffs, you let them go. But now they're upset. 
right? right? So just give them three minutes, explain why you did what you did, because they may not understand. Oh, absolutely. And we, like I said, we're really focused on that. It makes a huge difference. And that's something we didn't do 20, 30 years ago as a profession. I think we do owe it to people, especially if we've detained somebody. You know, one of the most difficult situations is, like I said earlier, a, a parent that comes running out of the house or pulling onto a scene as their son's getting arrested for selling drugs out of the house or doing something that maybe they didn't know about. And that's their baby, right? You know, he's 18, 19, 20. He's a young adult. We're not really legally obligated and, and we really can't tell too much details about the arrest. But naturally, the mom wants to know, right? And if she doesn't have any information, she's going to assume the worst. She's going to assume we picked up the wrong guy and that we're brutalizing her baby. And no, ma'am, we have probable cause to believe your son was selling drugs. A judge signed a warrant. He's not guilty of anything, but we're here for a reason. Here's the paperwork. Here's where we're going. Here's what his bond's going to be, you know, and it's a tough pill to swallow maybe for that mom, but take some time uh, to explain things. Are there things that you want to get to? Well, one of the things we talked about when we met was the term implicit bias. Right. And so I think that's one of the things that I I think deserves a little bit of clarity in the public sphere because it gets thrown a lot around a lot as kind of a widespread, pervasive, systemic problem with all law enforcement. And, and oftentimes it's used, in my opinion, it seems to be used to uh, accuse all officers of being kind of secret, secretly racist and just trying to suppress this underlying racism at all times. And, and it, implicit bias is absolutely a real thing. We train on it. It's part of our state mandated curriculum. But I think it's just gotten overblown like a lot of things and into something that it's really not. You know, in, implicit bias could pertain to race, but it it could pertain to a lot of other things. We all have preconceived notions based off of our upbringing, the area that we grew up in, the people that we were around, what is typical in the area that we work, what is unusual. What is unusual in my area that I work may not be unusual to someone in the other part of my city or vice versa. And I may give you a one example that comes to mind is the officer I referenced earlier that lost his job for excessive force. He he admitted in the interview that he had a really hard time maintaining his composure and his professionalism when dealing with drunk people and with dealing with people that were disrespectful. And this guy was both of those things. Absolutely. He Isn't was. Isn't that pretty much everybody now? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That's, and if, honestly, if, if, if you're, if you're a police officer and you're not prepared to deal with drunk people or yeah. people that disrespect you, I think you're in the long, wrong line of work. Right. Um, and, and race was not a factor. The, the officer and the citizen were both white, but he clearly, I mean, he admitted it. There was some underlying bias, if you will, or, or preconceived notion that he was already kind of primed to get more upset because of the person he was across. And it is important that if you ha- if you have something like that, where you kind of recognize that like disrespectful teenagers get under my skin, right? Or whatever that is, that you realize that about yourself and you take steps to not let that affect your job, right? So if you see a teenager walking down the street, 
you don't automatically assume that he or she is up to no good and you get out and jack them up and what are you doing over here? All of that. You got to have a reason to stop somebody. And, and so as long as that officer thinks before they get out and stop that kid, okay, what are they doing to make me suspicious? Do I have articulable facts that make them suspicious to me? Or is this just something I feel in my gut? Because if it's just something I feel in my gut, I got to keep driving. And I think we all do that. There's, there's those little things that we all kind of feel. And then you have to check yourself. That doesn't mean that we're all walking around with this underlying racism. Uh, and I think that's where it's that, that, that term implicit bias has gotten misused. It just overgeneralized in, in the conversation about defunding the police and the criticisms on police. It is something that we teach. It is a part of our ethics class. We talk about it. That's something that I think is, is really misunderstood. Agreed. Uh, that and de-escalation, you know, during the, the riots and all that civil unrest, people kept calling for, you know, in, in, implicit bias training, de-escalation training, not knowing that all officers already get that. Does it evolve over time? Yes. But... Yes. It, and it those topics, those soft skill kind of topics will always evolve over time and they should. That's a great point that you bring up. I think every police department, every state that mandates training needs to constantly be reevaluating, you know, what they're doing, how we're doing it. And culture and society evolve over time as well. So how we deal with people needs to change and that training needs to be consistent and continual. So, yeah, we've done those things for a long time. Um, we've gotten better at them over the years. Do we need to continue to improve? Absolutely. Our department, for example, we have scenario-based training that we do in addition to classrooms where we just focus on de-escalation. And then, of course, we have scenario-based training for a lot of other things that we do. The de-escalation is a part of that as well, right? We have scenarios where actors come in really high and really emotional, and officers need to use those skills to try to talk that person down and build rapport. It doesn't mean that officers always do it right in the field. Some do it better than others. It is a soft skill and we lose those soft skills if we don't practice them and think about them. But yes, we're, we're, we've been doing that for a while. That's something that we recognize as a profession that is very important. Well, and you had mentioned earlier, you know, things that you said something like we back in, back in the day, we didn't do things this way you know, how have things changed and what do people need to know? People seem to think that, you know, they keep saying that law enforcement needs to improve. Well, are you looking at what they're actually doing? So, I mean, just in my 18 years, things have changed a lot, but you know, even before that, you know, I, when I started, there were officers that had been here in the 80s and 70s. My dad was actually an, an officer mm -hmm. in the in the 80s and 90s, so I remember him as a kid, and I've heard many stories. We have changed a lot as a profession in the past 30, 40 years, and even the last 20 years. The amount of technology that we incorporate into solving crime and um, things like body cams being transparent, of course, the proliferation of cell phones and media and social media have caused us to be under more of a microscope than ever. And I, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's just an evolution, right? And it will continue to evolve. We don't know exactly what it'll look like in another 20 years. But to your point, I, I think what the public doesn't understand is that we have recognized for decades 
probably for as long as law enforcement has even been an organized thing. No one's ever been completely satisfied, I don't think, with the way that we do things. It's constantly an evolving skill set, an evolving profession where we we self-evaluate, we add training, we amend training, we try to improve our tactics, equipment, our standards, all of those things. And if there's ever a department that is complacent, then that's that's a problem because we can't afford to be complacent in our in our line of work because we'll get left behind. Society will will move past us. The criminals will become more advanced. We have to be forward thinking. We have to be intentional. And I think we do that as a profession. We have folks that study these things constantly. Our police chiefs are constantly evaluating ways they can move us forward as an organization. Our trainers are looking for new and innovative ways with virtual reality and remote training. You know, an AI is, is, is relatively new, and I'm sure that will enter the law enforcement sphere at some point. My takeaway that I want people to have is that we recognize that growth and continual training and continual improvement are needed in law enforcement. We are never going to be 100% satisfied with the status quo. That doesn't mean that we're a broken profession, that we're filled with problems. There are always deficiencies. There are always areas in which we need to improve. We are not satisfied. And we're going to continue to learn and grow and improve as a profession. You talked about that domestic violence call where maybe the suspect is being nice to you and the victim is not. I've done a lot of work around domestic violence, a lot of interviews, and I know that sometimes the person who's being abused, they see the officers come and now their loved one, even though that loved one is their abuser, is now in handcuffs and then they attack the police. I know you were in domestic violence. Were you referring maybe to an incident that you had experienced yourself? Well, there's several calls that I've worked like that. And and actually, the one I was thinking of involved a female that was actually very irate that we were there. And really just, I don't think really liked police in general and was just, just very emotional, very upset, had not come down from the level she was at with the argument. And then the guy, probably knowing that he had done mm. something wrong, was cool as a cucumber and uh, wanted to be super cooperative, probably to, you know, lessen his chances of going to jail. And we actually train, uh, at least when I helped out with the training on this topic, we did scenarios like this because it does throw officers for a loop a little bit. You're preconditioned to expect a certain kind of behavior from people and people are not always predictable. They can throw you off a little bit. And so you have to weed through the persona and the perception and the emotions and actually strip away, get to the facts. And, and as an officer too, responding to domestic violence calls, although it's not fun to have to respond to those, I enjoyed kind of the puzzle and trying, because mm. you would, you'd really never get the full story from anybody. And you've got two people that have their own perspective and, and the truth is probably in the middle somewhere and trying to piece together all of the facts to figure out as best you can what happened just was an exercise in investigation. So that was domestic violence. Now I know you also were a hostage negotiator. That has to be both challenging and rewarding. Yes, I did that for about five years. And we have a team of 10 negotiators that have regular jobs within the police department. And they train to be called up as needed. 
to, to right. go out to those situations. And I got to do that for five years. I was one of the assistant team leaders. So one of the supervisors on the team, you know, helping coordinate training equipment and responses. And it was a, a really great experience working together with some great men and women and working as part of the, the SWAT team at large. And all of the tactics we use to encourage people to come out and surrender and negotiators are a part of that. So I was fortunate to be a part of a couple negotiations where one had a successful outcome where the, the, the guy, you know, was very difficult, didn't want to come out, very demeaning on the phone. And it tested me, hmm. honestly, he, he was, he knew he had the upper hand and he, he would, he would act like we were buddies and then he would flip it on me and insult me and make me feel dumb for trying to build rapport with him. And it was a real struggle to maintain my cool. That's a different role as a negotiator. You don't get to just bark orders at people because they have some leverage in that scenario. And not that you're capitulating to them, but you have to ease into that conversation a little bit and build rapport and build some trust. And we do things like use our own first name You know, that's a negotiator tactic where we try to connect with people and I'm not officer so-and-so I'm Jared and I'm also a dad and I'm, I'm a husband and I've gone through tough situations and I can relate to you and, uh, somewhat and try to connect with somebody as a human being and be vulnerable. And that's, that's something we're not comfortable doing as cops and takes a, a lot of training. So. One of those worked pretty well and he was, he came out and the other one, uh, I don't think we were going to be able to talk him out of doing what he wanted to do. So um, before you, before you, I think I know what you're talking about before you go to that one though. So if in this situation he had gotten to you, so we talked about officers who make mistakes on the job. What if in that scenario he got to you and you lost your cool? That's a great point. That's a great question. And so in in that scenario, as a team of negotiators, we have other negotiators listening in. We have people on our team passing notes. We work collectively as a team. And in that particular scenario, uh, I distinctly remember kind of hitting a roadblock at one point and getting frustrated. And somebody on the team signaled to me that we needed to take a break. Mm. And and that's something that we practice, um, we train on. And it's hard, though to disconnect with somebody. Am I going to be able to reconnect with this guy? Is he going to answer his phone next time I call? But we needed it. We needed to, I needed to calm down. We needed to regroup. We have some folks with behavioral health, mental health uh, expertise on our team. They could give me some pointers and some strategies. You know, this particular guy had a narcissistic personality issue Mm. that you had to honestly, in order to get him to do what we wanted him to do, you had to kind of lean into that a little bit which is hard for me to do (laughs) to try to kind of stroke his ego a little bit and try to make surrendering his idea. And so I've got other scenarios too, where I'll give you a perfect example because I believe in, in leading by example and I make mistakes as well. I had an incident years ago as a patrol sergeant where I just was helping out me and an officer handling a call at a pizza parlor where they do kids' birthdays. They had some guests there that were being difficult with the management the management wanted them to leave. And when we got there, we were just trying to help facilitate that. And the guests were being disrespectful to us. And I got annoyed and made a disrespectful comment. I didn't cuss, but I made a disrespectful comment back mm. and that led to a complaint. Mm. And, you know, I was a supervisor on scene 
And I had another officer there that was following my lead. And, and, you know, I'm still embarrassed about that to this day. So we're all capable of letting, we're human beings, right? And so another thing we train on now as a department, as a profession is peer intervention. And that's mm-hmm. still kind of a new, newer concept that you're starting to hear more about. And it's a mindset shift with being okay to have another officer who may even be a lower rank or newer than you to tap you on the shoulder and say, you know, Hey Ross, I got this. Let me Mm -hmm. take over because they can see that maybe you're hitting a roadblock or, or someone's getting under your skin, but that's a good thing that everybody wins in that scenario. None of us should be so proud to not accept that help, that intervention, because we're all capable of reaching that boiling point and we have to look out for ourselves and for each other. Yeah. And for those who think law enforcement refuses to evolve and change over time, I would direct them directly to this as a perfect example of how hard law enforcement does try, how law enforcement is willing to change, to adapt. And, you know, people just don't want to see them. Before I forget, the the one incident you were talking about as a hostage negotiator is the one that didn't go well. We had one where it was just an unfortunate scenario where a guy had mental health issues and it had kind of spiraled. He had lost a job, lost his wife, and he thought there was no way out. So he was intent on ending his own life. We negotiated with him for hours. We tried several tactics with our SWAT team to try to encourage him to come out. It was frustrating for me because he was willing to talk, which I believed was a sign that he was willing to listen and willing to maybe come out. Because typically when someone's convinced that they're going to kill themselves, they they just do. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he was answering the phone every time we called, he would engage with me, he would listen to me. Um, I never really got anywhere though with him. I never really got deep. I never really got any kind of connection. It was pretty clear at the end that he, there's really nothing we could have said to, to force him to change his mind. And unfortunately he, he took his own life while I was on the phone with him and, uh, you know, later saw the crime scene photos where the phone was in his hand in the pool of blood. And I, I knew that I was on the other line of the other end of that phone at the time. So it was kind of a surreal feeling. And it was, although I knew I had done everything I could have, and we did everything we could have as a team, it's hard. You, you, you naturally ask yourself, what more could I have done? Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Well, that has to weigh on you for a long time. Yeah. Sorry. The thing I said I wanted to come back to was in the situation where you guys took a break, you know, you didn't overreact but then you went to a story about being in the restaurant and sort of making a comment that was not appropriate. Yeah, I definitely lost my cool a little bit. <laughs> right. So then in that instance, when you're in IA and you get a case like that, like you lost your cool. So what happened? How would you, you feel if you got reported to IA for something like that? I mean, you... Go ahead. Yeah, great question. <laughs> and, and not every instance instance is the same, right? And so um, it depends on how an officer reacts and how far potentially off the deep end they go, right? It's not okay for any of our officers to lose their cool ever. And in a perfect world, we're never we should never let anybody get under our skin. The reality is it's going to happen from time to time. 
We try to mitigate it as much as possible. And when it does happen, we hope that it's just a momentary thing where at most an officer may make a comment under her breath or his breath and or say something sarcastic. You know, if that's all it is, as long as it's not a continual issue with that officer, we can work with that, right? And it's usually not going to go to IA. It may not even be a disciplinary matter. We try to provide some coaching, a reminder, you know, hopefully the officer is self-aware and receptive and we move on. The only time it really becomes an issue is when, and this doesn't happen often, but if an officer were to just completely lose their cool and twist off on somebody and cuss them up and down, certainly if an officer's laying hands on someone or doing more than they should with force because they've lost their cool, then we have a significant issue. Yeah. So that's the important distinction between more of the the minor kind of occurrences and when something becomes serious. And that's to go back to what we were talking about. There's different types of mistakes. And it's important that we evaluate as supervisors. We don't just treat every mistake the same. Every mistake is going to have its unique cause. And we have to look at the employee's background, both good and negative, and customize kind of our response. Yeah. I did get a talking to. That's oh, for you? sure. My lieutenant at the time gave me a talking to. I didn't get disciplined, but I got a talking to, which was embarrassing enough for me to not let it happen again. Yeah. Was it hard to be in IA? Yeah. I mean, there's always certain challenges that come with, with that, right? There's the jokes that uh, <laughs> you hear from people that you've worked with for years that, you know, now you walk down the hallway and mm. conversations kind of get quieter. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that stuff's to be expected. The, and, and I had an opportunity to train a lot of the IA investigators that came. Uh, we have two investigators and then a lieutenant and, a, and an office assistant. There were times that I was the senior investigator and have to train some of the newer newer folks. And I think the important quality that they all had and, and the quality that we'd looked for when selecting somebody new was, you know, you want somebody that's already well-respected professional within the organization to even get selected, right? If you've got somebody that's not respected, that people already know is a hothead or not a very fair supervisor or not competent, that's not a good person to put in internal affairs because we need the department, we need the the everyday officer, the public, the supervision, everyone to be able to look at internal affairs and say, even though I may not understand or agree with the outcome, I trust that the people that are in that unit are good ethical people and they made the best decision based on the facts that they had. Make sure you select people that are already respected members of the department. And then once in there, you have to obviously uphold that. Hopefully, if you've done a good job treating people with respect and professionalism beforehand, you've done the same when you've been in internal affairs. Then when you come out of internal affairs, it's not awkward. I now work you know, around people that I've investigated. Mm. I work around people that were friends of people that got fired because of my investigations. And wow. You know, there's it's there's still some degree of awkwardness, I, I guess, suppose. But I like to think that I always treated people professionally and with respect, even when I had to interview them, even when they were accused of something, so that when we see each other outside of internal affairs, we uh, we don't have that bad blood. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess that would be hard. 
Yeah. Oh, you had said in the premier view that officers think IA is waiting for something to happen. I would say the vast majority of internal affairs, maybe with the exception of some really large organizations, internal affairs units are typically reactive only. They're only going to investigate things that are brought to them by a citizen or by someone from inside the department that says, hey, we've uncovered this possible misconduct. You need to look into it. And that's a big misnomer, even within our own profession, within our own department. And we do make sure that members from internal affairs go to the police academy. They try to educate the officers on what to expect, because it's an important distinction to, to know. We don't want people to be paranoid, thinking right. that we're out there doing sting operations. <laughs> we don't have time for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, internal affairs has enough work on their own. Uh, they don't need to go create work. They would rather not have to do anything, right? If everyone's doing their job, and we've had periods like that. Thankfully, when I was in internal affairs, we had some times where we were busy. And then we had periods where we would just kind of joke with ourselves, like, I guess everybody's behaving because the phone's not ringing and uh, we're here if anybody needs us, but we're not going to look for things, right? That's not internal affairs, at least in our department, doesn't conduct proactive audits. We're not going to try to hunt for misconduct. We're only investigating what's given to us. Okay. Well, now to bring it back to your current role as patrol commander, are the guy, the men and women that are under your command, are they like, oh man, he was in IA? <laughs> yeah, I think I made a joke about that the first day I attended briefing, like, you know, because some of those officers I hadn't worked with, you know, some of them are newer and all they know about me is my guy that's been in IA and they never worked with me and they never saw me in uniform before. So they naturally probably think, well, what does this guy know? And he's just here yeah. to write us up. Uh, I think you just have to, I, I've, made, I've been very intentional about being approachable, personable, appreciative of what the officers are doing. I try to be out there and lead by example when I can so that officers know I'm not going to ask them to do anything that I'm not willing to do myself, that I understand sometimes things are complicated and messy and I understand sometimes officers make mistakes. Sometimes they're a few minutes late to work. Sometimes they drive a little too fast. Those are things we can just talk about, right? Those are things we can fix. You know, I, just because I was an IA doesn't mean I'm looking to write everybody up. <laughs> Again, I don't want to, I would prefer not to have to do any of that. Uh, that's just more work for me. So, yeah, right. Right. Well, and also, you know, to give you a break on the IA stuff, I assume you also emphasize. What I hear from patrol officers is, and, and this is like some retired officers, right? One I interviewed recently who said he had a particularly tough call and he really wished that his, I don't know if it would have been sergeant or lieutenant or chief, had sat him down and said, hey, are you okay? I mean, right. I think I think law enforcement is getting better at that now with a, the emphasis, a focus on wellness. But do you make that part of your sort of mindset? Absolutely. And our department has been at the forefront of um, advancements in officer wellness, peer support. We've had a couple tough weeks here recently. We had an officer. That's right. I'm sorry. Yeah, a motorcycle officer that got killed in a, in a wreck on the highway on the interstate on his way to work. And then we had an officer involved shooting recently. Oh, really? So in a, in a different district, but. You know, the officers are not injured, but that's a, that's stressful, right? To know that your colleagues in a different district are, are dealing with that. So there's, yeah, it's just been a, kind of a, the, the funeral itself for that officer was 
stressful and the planning and the coordination and, you know, the community supported us, our neighboring police departments really supported us. All of that collectively really weighs on officers. And in conjunction with that is the same day we had two murders within a couple of days in our district and a fatality accident. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I, I try, I, the other day in briefing, I just, you know, made a statement that, uh, you know, I know it's been tough and it's been tough for all of us. And I just appreciate them showing up every day and doing the job. And I try to not sweat the small stuff and to stay out of their hair and to give them grace, especially when we're going through stressful periods. Obviously we still have standards to uphold. People don't get a free pass if they make mistakes necessarily, but absolutely supervisors need to be sensitive to those stressors and aware of how all that stuff collectively can, can weigh on officers and to be checking in with officers regularly. We have a ton of resources in in our department. Well, I, you know, officer involved shooting in particular, and I did an episode on deadly use of force and the impact on the officer. And it's just something that I think the public refuses to understand or make an effort to understand the impact on the officer in these instances. Absolutely. And it's not just the officer, it's those around them, those on the call that they could have guilt for, you know, not being there sooner or not being able to help. Or I know for me, I felt even if you're removed and you're on a different shift or different district, you feel a certain level of stress or guilt because you're not able to do more to help. And you know what that officer is going through is stressful. And, you know, and then if it's somewhat controversial, then the department feels pressure from the community and all of that kind of transfers down to officers. So again, that, that it's really vital that supervisors are in tune with that and that are um, just being sensitive to that and having conversations and briefing. Uh, I know, our deputy chief in, in our district came and he normally doesn't come to briefings at nine o'clock at night for obvious reasons. Um, but he made it a point to come a few times to make sure the officers in our district knew that he was there for them. And so that, that goes a long way. Yeah. And I can't remember if you said you have been in an officer involved shooting. No, I have not yeah. myself. Okay. So when you have to investigate that, I mean, did the ones that came to you, were they all cleared? Um, the ones that I personally worked were all cleared. There were some other, there was one or two other ones that were not, that um, were determined to be not justified. And does that officer then get fired? We have had officers get fired. I couldn't give the exact numbers. I would say over the past five years, we've had two or three officers get fired for um, shootings that were not justified. <laughs> That's tough. Yeah. They've gone through, you know, the criminal justice system. Some of them have. And we had an officer from from a a neighboring police department that was convicted recently um, and is in prison for an officer involved shooting. And uh, unfortunately, that that officer is related to one of our officers. So we feel a lot of kind of vicarious emotion for our officer as well. And because we're kind of a part of the family. So it's never a good feeling for, for any of us. When I did that episode, what it made me feel like is that this is what officers are out there dealing with every day. Like Kim Potter, you could just be doing your job and on any given day, it could all change. 
if the public doesn't isn't aware of how much this weighs on officers every day. Yes, and there's various degrees of what is wrong. Obviously, the the lens of the law, but then we also have internal policies. So it's not unheard of for an officer to be fired, but then they're not convicted or maybe not even charged criminally because obviously the burden of proof is different. Our policies are going to be more broad and more, I guess, more specific on, they mirror the law, right? And when an officer is justified, but then we also have pre-planning policies. We have de-escalation policies. So we're looking, we have a policy on verbal warning. So we're looking for other policies as well that really don't have anything to do with the law. And, and like I said earlier, not every mistake is the same. We had an officer that was trying to shoot a dog that he thought was aggressive coming toward him. And he either missed the dog or the round skipped off the ground, whichever you believe. And it struck and killed the dog owner. Oh, dear. It was downrange behind the dog. Obviously, the officer had no intention to hit that person. He was aiming for the dog. But we, there's still a responsibility to a degree that you're, you, you can control it. There's a responsibility to be careful of what your background is whenever you're shooting your weapon. So there were consequences for that. Maybe not the same consequences as someone who just outright kills somebody um, on purpose for no justification. So again, that's a nuance that the public may not appreciate. They may lump all of those together and... Some folks may have a narrative that all of those scenarios are the same, right? And all of those scenarios in, in someone's mind could could tell them that officers are intentionally trying to kill people when um, we know that is not the case. You know, like I said earlier, some of these mistakes, I mean, they're all dire consequences and they all need to be addressed and people need to be held accountable. But we have to look at the why behind those, those things and determined, uh, was there malicious intent? Was it just an error in judgment when deciding uh, the penalty? So I guess I should ask first, you know, you mentioned your father being in law enforcement. I haven't asked you what, uh, what drew you to law enforcement? Well, that was probably part of it. Although I never really thought about being a cop when I was a kid or, or a young man. I went to college and was going to be a psychologist and be a therapist for some reason that was something I was interested in I guess I like talking to people and trying to solve problems and then I realized how much school that would require uh, <laughs> postgraduate and uh, realized I could I could be out there and talk to people and solve problems and still drive fast and jump over fences and chase people and do all that fun stuff too I decided my senior year in college to go into local law enforcement and I applied for the Arlington Police Department which is where I grew up and where my father worked at one point and um so I've been there since 05. And initially I, I would told myself I would just do it for a few years and then maybe go into federal law enforcement and travel the world and all of that stuff. But I just really fell in love with it. I really, we have a great department, great size, ability to do different things, you know, work in different shifts, work in different sides of town, work in different specialized units. And there's never been a dull moment. I've been able to kind of have a very diverse career doing a lot of different kinds of things and it's kept it fresh and interesting and what are some of the incidents you remember people you remember throughout your career i made some good arrests i got i suffered a pretty significant injury uh, mm. chasing somebody and have an artificial shoulder now uh, wow. as a result courtesy of the city <laughs> 
so that was certainly an impactful part of my career. There was a moment where I thought my career might be over, that I might not be able to recover enough to be a fully functioning cop. But modern medical science uh, pulled through, so had some great doctors. Wow. You know, just like every other law enforcement officer, there's horrible, tragic things that I've witnessed, and there's also incredible, awesome things that I've witnessed. You know, witnessed bravery and compassion and gotten to witness some great men and women uh, do some great police work and gotten to do a little bit of that myself. And I, I, honestly, I've really, what I've, what's been most fulfilling for me is pouring into other officers and new supervisors and, and teaching at our academy, mentoring the next generation of leaders in our department. And that's what's the most fulfilling to me. I think that's where that's our legacy. I personally don't have a desire to be a police chief. I'm not trying to get my name on a building or um, something wrong with that, if that's your decision. But I hope my legacy one day is going to be that I was the best cop I could be and that I made those around me the best that they could be. And hopefully that leaves our organization a little bit better than when I started. That's a great place to end. Thank you, newly appointed Lieutenant Jared Ross, for your time today. I want to let you uh, get in your game head and go out there and be with your people on the midnight shift. So I better let you go. Thank you for your thought on all of this. Thank you for your time. Of course. It's been great. I'm very passionate about this profession and I appreciate your time and all those that tune in to listen. And I hope folks continue to do good work out there and, and spread you know, the message throughout your friends and family members about the true story of law enforcement. Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying. And, uh, I think we covered a lot of deep subjects and a lot of important subjects. So I think a lot of these things will probably ring true with a lot of those out there in the law enforcement community. And hopefully we can all kind of collectively continue to work together to tell our story a little bit more effectively so that the full perspective is known to everyone. Yeah. So I really appreciate the platform. Well, thanks. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Absolutely. <laughs> and thanks for reaching out. And thank you for being a police officer. Thank you. I appreciate it. Again, I want to thank Lieutenant Jared Ross for reaching out to me, for his time in discussing these important topics, for sharing his personal story, and of course, to all of you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. If you want to contact me, I always include my email and my Instagram handle in the episode notes. Thanks again. I really, really do appreciate it.